Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Conversation. Today, my special guest is Sam Acho. Many of you would remember him uh, when he was here, spoke here at, at Browncroft last year. Sam is an author now. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. An NFL linebacker, humanitarian, public speaker, and committed Christian. After playing college football at the University of Texas, he was drafted as a linebacker by the Arizona Cardinals in 2011. After four seasons there, he signed and played for four more at the Chicago Bears or with the Chicago Bears. And in 2019-20, last season, he played one year for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He is currently a free agent. Maybe we'll get into that as well. For some years, he has been a representative also and remains of the Players Association and the NFL, and he helped lead social justice initiatives that continue to make an impact in the city of Chicago. Sam is married to Ngazi, hope I got that right, has three young children and takes them on, I assume, medical missions trips to Nigeria, where he has been, what he's been doing for many years uh, through his mom and dad who have ministry there. Sam, it's great to have you as a guest. Great to see you even. I know you're in Chicago. Welcome to the conversation. Rob, I'm so glad, so, so glad to be a part of the conversation today. Well, you know, I want to dive right in. We were just talking about this a second ago before we started um, a book, and I feel so privileged. I didn't know until you just told me, Sam, you just uh, authored a book that's going to be published uh, to the world in October called Let the World See You. So, um, but I want to start with that because, you know, uh, you, 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 you know, a lot of people write books, you know, let's say they're you know, for various reasons, they're, they're celebrities or, you know, football players, sports players, or just, you know, everyday pastors, whatever, um, because they can. But um, having read your book, um, it's, and I, I, I'm not pumping sunshine to you, I think you, you have a gift. And I learned a lot about you, including your academic prowess and your interests. So maybe we'll get into that. So you're someone who isn't just writing a book, you have something to say, but, but since no one has yet read your book, except a few close friends, um, what question do you hope the book answers? You know, why'd you write this book? Yeah. Yeah. The, the question that I hope this book answers is the question of identity and the question of authenticity. Who am I? And am I being real? That's, that's the crux of the question. So many of us, me included, I would pretend. And I would act like I had it all together and I would act like I was the guy and things are good. Even when things were bad, I would have to pretend that they were good. And that's why the book is titled, Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. I want people to be able to read this book and leave saying, oh, wow, there's so much more that I have to give to this world that I felt like was just unleashed by reading this book. So one of the things that you said might help get a little to the heart of it that struck my attention in your introduction is you talked about the importance of being with your emotions. You said, or I want to be with my emotions. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, here's what I mean. I mean that I'm, I'm six foot three, 255 pounds. I'm going on my 10th season as a linebacker in the NFL. And I didn't experience true freedom and true joy, joy and true authenticity until I started crying and emoting mm. in front of my teammates. Mm. Here's what I mean. 
so often, I think so many of us put on masks and we try to pretend and we try to act like things are all together and they're, and, and because of the fact of life is they're not. And so when I say be real with your emotions, I mean this, I mean, I got a chance to actually sit down with the counselor because things weren't going good and I was acting like they were and they weren't. And he asked me, he said, what do you do, Sam, when you get angry? And I looked at him and I said, well, I try not to get angry. I said it with a smile on my face. He looked at me again. He said, Sam, what do you do when you get angry? I said it a little bit louder. I said, I try not to get angry. And he looked at me again. He said, Sam, everyone gets angry. What do you do when you get angry? And my response to that question, to that probing was I would get more and more angry to the point where I started crying real tears because I realized that this persona of always having a smile on my face, things always being okay and, and never going bad, that wasn't me. I am emotional. I am a lover of people. Real men cry. And I am a crier. And there's so much freedom that comes from, from showing and being with your emotions. It's mm, great. So speaking of that subject, others being with your emotions or dealing maybe even with um, anger as an example. Um, you are, as you mentioned a minute ago, um, not only you've been in the NFL for 10 years or whatever it's been, but you've been a part of the, uh, the um, Players Association. And I had a chance also to read an article that you just read or wrote, I'm sorry, in the, um, the Players Tribune about um, the Rooney Rule. So I wonder, I know that you, you mentioned in that article uh, no surprise, perhaps, that you have both experienced some forms of racism, both as a player and even in a, as you look as a representative. And um, what do you and I and you talked about? I read your article about the Rooney Rule, which um, maybe you can say a little bit about for for our listeners what the Rooney Rule is. And I, my sense from your article was not a whole lot has changed in twenty years or whenever since that rule came in. But are you hopeful? What's what's your sense about? Um, it, let's just say racism in the NFL. Yeah. So racism and implicit bias, I believe it still exists, not only in the NFL, but in the world at large. Right. I think we see it when it comes to co coaching hires. There's 32 coaches in the NFL. Only three are black. Out of the 2000 plus players in the NFL, about 80% are black. I talked with a lot of coaches or potential head coaches or potential position coaches who said, man, I didn't get a fair chance. And you hear these anecdotal stories and you think that, well, maybe it's just you. Maybe it's getting made up. Well, there was a study done a couple years ago by university that looked at two people with identical resumes, the exact same resume, they had their resume sent in. They did, did a study. They found that the person with the black sounding name was, was less likely to get called back than the person with the white sounding name. In fact, the person with the white sounding name had twice as, as much of a likelihood to get a callback for a second interview as a person with the black sounding name. So someone like um, Joshua or Mark would get a callback, but um, Deshaun or, or, or Raekwon would not get a callback. So maybe and in so your case, I'm thinking you, Sam gets a callback, but his brother, isn't your brother's name Emmanuel? Emmanuel, yeah, Emmanuel. So maybe, maybe you yeah. get the callback and he doesn't, I don't know. Right. I'll tell you, you never know. It's like, and that, but, but you look at the statistics, you say, man, racism still does exist, even in the NFL. In the article I wrote, I titled it Upstairs versus Downstairs, because we all saw during the pandemic, if anyone who watched the draft, you saw 
scores and scores of players, predominantly black, getting drafted mm-hmm. in, in small houses and kind of trying to figure it out and just hoping to make ends meet. Then you saw dozens of coaches and general managers, predominantly white, in their huge houses and living the dream. You're wondering, man, where are the black head coaches? Where are the black general managers? Where are they? And so I think that just pointed to the bigger issue of of systemic racism and implicit bias in the NFL. And do you think, you know, now being in not only a player for these uh, last decade, but also um, part of the Players Association, do you, even though the there's only three coaches. I mean, I think it got up to eight. You said in the article at one point. But are you? Is there any hope? Do you feel like you're making? There's some progress being made, or not so much? Yeah, I think I think there is hope. I know that when the Rooney Rule was implemented, that rule was initially implemented because there was no more than two black coaches in the NFL. As a matter of fact, there were three, and then two got fired, and one a different one got hired. So there were two, and there was a study done that said, "Hey, you are actually discriminating against black coaches." NFL, particularly, you're discriminating. Because there was proof that black coaches actually average 1.1 more wins in their tenure than white coaches. Yeah. And so how are you fired? And, and, and also they average, I think, 1.3. In, the, in their season before being fired, they average 1.1 or 1.2 more wins in the season before being fired mm. than their white counterparts. And so the Rooney Rules implemented, implemented which meant that coaches and, and, and owners had to at least interview interview a minority candidate before giving the job to a friend. People talk about cronyism uh, oftentimes, just hiring people you know, people you're friends with. Right. And so that rule was implemented in 2003. In 2006, there were six, seven black coaches in the NFL and two black coaches were coaching in the Super Bowl. Well, right. we thought the trend was going up, things were getting better. Well, fast forward in 2020, there's just three again. Mm. And so things have not really worked. The Rooney Rule, in my opinion, hasn't really worked as well, but I, I do see that mm-hmm. there is hope for things getting better. They've made a few new changes, and I think that now that people's hearts are changing, I think that mm-hmm. decisions will change as well. So as you as you look out beyond the NFL, I'm sure you, you I'm guessing, I shouldn't say I'm sure, that you you get asked this question um, more than I do because you're black, but what, what's your sense about what's happening in, in, in black America today? I mean, is it, um, is this, you know, a sign that, you know, things are going from bad to worse, you know, we're on the verge of something, or is this a disruption about something positive? What do you think? Yeah, I think that things are getting better. And, and here's what I mean by that. I'm in Chicago now and I've lived here for four years and I'm back now and I'm seeing more black people out and about. I'm not saying that to say, well, like, you know, we're getting more integrated. No, but it's almost like, you know, I will say this, Chicago is the most segregated city in the United States, according to a study that was done about two years ago by the University of Chicago Crime Lab. And now all of a sudden, that's, I see people out, people moving and interacting, and I see that as positive. I also see, you talk about the situation in black America, I think it's really white America that's really coming to terms with some of the, the, the uncomfortable past that our country has yet to really talk about. It's not taught in history, in, his, in our history books. It's not taught in our history classes. Just some of the, the ugliness of racism, of segregation, of Jim Crow laws, black codes, uh, of, the, of, all, of all, you know, the prison system, all these different things that our country doesn't talk about. Mm. I think finally, white America is really coming to terms with the fact that, okay, Maybe there are some wrongs that need to be righted. Conversations need to be had. And maybe, just maybe, 
we can use this moment as a turning point for a better America. Yeah, no, I, I hope that's true. And I would even say as a, as a white American and Christian, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, free of implicit bias. I'm sure I have my own forms of racism and um, issues, but um, I, but I would like to think I'm a relatively enlightened person. And even in this season of months, I have, maybe we'll get to this, have, have watched some things, read some, um, uh, some important books and had some important conversations and feel like I, as one person, have made some progress. So I'm hoping what you just said is true. I, I do think um, that, um, you know, the, that the, even though we're not all, there's not one black story or one white story, but white people in general, as you say, I think we, we have a lot to learn. And, um, and I hope that this is one, if that is one of the outcomes of this, whatever we're going through this, this moment, then that's a very positive thing. You know, the thing I wanted to ask you, it wasn't in, in my, uh, um, list of questions, but when I was thinking, learning more about your wife, um, as someone who lives here now, you mentioned before, she's, you know, obviously you guys got married in the last handful of years, she's living here, but did not grow up here. Okay. Now, so she's, she's black skin, but didn't grow up here. And I wonder what does she think? And the reason I asked that is I just had a conversation not long ago with our mayor here in Rochester, who is um, African-American and she grew up here, but her father is not. In other words, he's, he, he grew up and he didn't even move here until he was in his thirties. And she told me he's, he's, he's black, he's a black man, but she said, um, um, although she grew up in whatever it was, let's say in the, in the eighties, nineties, whatever, she's, she's a relatively young woman, but she said, um, you know, in some ways the, um, her father's attitude was, um, you know, uh, he, he didn't give her a lot of room to, um, to experience some of, let's say, the experiences of other African-Americans because it wasn't his experience, that is to say, some of the, the um, understood um, bias or prejudice. So I just wondered when your wife now lives here, is um, if she has a particular attitude or how does, she, how does she experience what's happening in this country from a standpoint of not having grown up here? Yeah, I think for her, a lot of it is she is hurt. She's hurt because when she sees from the outside looking in, George Floyd, uh, a man, a police officer had his knee on his neck for eight minutes, 46 seconds. He's crying for his mom, saying, I can't breathe. You see people like Ahmaud Arbery, who's jogging in the neighborhood and gets essentially shot down by some white people in the neighborhood. You see that as a human being, your heart breaks. It should break at least. Yeah. But I feel like in America, it gets politicized. It becomes this issue of, of looking for more evidence or innocent until proven guilty, where the way she sees it, she says, man, this is a human life who is now gone. Mm. And why is no one really talking about it? Mm. Why is this, you know, this, her heart just breaks. Uh, okay. Her heart breaks. So, um, I know Sam because I, I I know some of your story and uh, some some who are listening to this know your story. That is that you're not only a follower of Jesus, your your dad's a pastor, so you have a long history of walking with Jesus. But even know something about the church because your dad's work and and the work that you even have done with him as a young person and as a, a young adult. So my question is how how should the church, in your opinion? respond to this situation in in some sense 
uh, as a Christian, I, the problem isn't any different that I see happening in our world. I'm talking about race in America. It's not different if you're a Christian or non-Christian, the problem, but I would imagine one's response might be different. How do you think the church should be responding uniquely or differently than the culture even is responding to this? Yeah, you would hope, we would hope that the church would respond in the right way. But history has shown that at least the American church has chosen to turn a blind eye to racism. Here's what I mean by that. There's a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. I believe it's by a man by the name of Howard Thurman. There's another book called Divided by Faith um, that talks about the church in America's racist history. Talks about living, uh, I mean, Howard Thurman growing up in the South, and he's, he's a follower of Jesus. And grew up in the South, I believe he was around the 50s, and 40s, excuse me, 30s, 40s, 50s, and talking about how oftentimes Sunday morning, church is going on, church service would get paused as some of the leaders in the church would go for a lynching. Mm. Stop service, go do this lynching, lynch, hang an African-American man just because he's black or accused of a false crime and then they'd come back and continue service. There's, there, there, and that's not a rumor, that's fact. That's uh, history. That, once again, no one really taught that. You don't hear about that. Right. I even talk about the Southern Baptist Church. The reason it's called the Southern Baptist Church is because people at that time still believed in owning slaves in the South. And so if you just look at the history of America and Christianity in America, you would hope that Christians would have a different response. But in fact, the alternative has been true. Christians, historically speaking, have really propagated slavery mm. and have not spoken up for the injustices of slavery, the injustices of racism and of bias. And that is the point. If we ever wanted, you know, I have, my brother says, and he has a video called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And he says, if white people are the problem, then white people have to be the solution. If the church is the problem, right. the church has to be the solution. So it's a win and a loss. The loss is right. the fact that, man, the church is the problem. But the win is, man, we can be the solution. We can fight for unity. We can fight. go to church on Sunday. Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. is still the most segregated time yeah. of the day in an entire week. Why is that? Yeah. Why is that? It's not by accident. If our job as followers of Jesus is to reconcile, then why aren't we reconciling? That would be the question I would ask. And I think the answer would be, we've gotten too comfortable in our pews. Yeah. Or I guess just listening to you, and I, I, I think the, um, you know, the, the, what you're saying is correct. We're not necessarily taught that history. You know what I mean? Even, even obviously we're not doing that today because we're not lynching people today, but we're not, I don't know that we're all taught that history about what, how the church acted. Uh, but I, I guess the, what you're saying is that the culture, the church is supposed to be not only countercultural, sometimes we use that word, we, it almost sounds negative, like whatever this culture is for, we should be against. That's not what countercultural necessarily means. Or what it means is we ought to have a a kingdom point of view. What might the what would Jesus do kind of point of view? How would how how should I act as a follower of Jesus in X or Y issue? And relative to racism, or or or, or judging people, or or 
pigeonholing people or um, being prejudiced against people because of the color of their skin, however we describe racism, how should a follower of Jesus react? And one thing is different probably than the the large the culture at large. So I so let me re-ask the question. What you what you answered is we haven't done such a very good job. What should we do? What what's the ideal response of a follower of Jesus, whatever the color of their skin is? But um, how should we, as followers of Jesus, act differently? How should we respond as the church, regardless of what the culture does, whether the culture acts in in in, 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 you know, only becomes more racist in their views, or the culture says, this is where I'm wondering, is they say, well, what we need is mainly policy changes, which I'm for, but um, only the Christian, you know, I suppose, can, can get to the heart issue, right, um, because they have the power of the gospel. How should I act differently? How should we act differently? Yeah, well, um, so Proverbs, 30 verses 8 and 9 says this, excuse me, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, mm. for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so the church's response should be, and when I say the church, people who are in the pews, the followers of Jesus, we should be speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. African-Americans, black people, make up about 13% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. I'd ask the question for your church and any other church, how many African-Americans, what percentage of your church is African-American? Right. Right, that's a rhetorical question, but the real meaning is we need to speak up for African-Americans. They cannot speak for themselves at this point. We've been crying out, hey, help, help, help. There are issues with uh, the criminal justice system. There are issues um, with with uh, policing, there are issues with racism. There are issues with bias. Mm. Please speak up for me because no one else is listening. Mm. And so, what the church should do, what Jesus would do, what Jesus did, what Jesus did, is that he picked the disenfranchised. Yeah, and he said, "I want to sit with you." He picked Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right. hated by the community. He was stealing from people. He was he was charging three, four times more than what was owed. He was a Jew, but he was working essentially for the people in charge, I believe the Romans at the time, and he was collecting extra taxes. And and as Jesus is walking, he sees him up in a sycamore tree. And he says that he has come down. I'm going to sit. I want to, I'm going to go to your house tonight. No one else was doing that. No one, people were actually were were laughing at Zacchaeus, making fun. No one else was doing that. But Jesus Jesus said, no, I'm going to sit with you the prostitute, the woman who everyone wanted to stone. She was caught in adultery, caught sleeping with multiple men. And, and no one talks about the men she was sleeping with. That's right. neither here nor there. Right. But, um, right. but they're all ready to stone her. And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible says mm. that from oldest to youngest, each of the men, each of the people there dropped their stones and walked away. Jesus doesn't go and condemn this woman. He goes to her and he says, where have all your accusers gone? He says, they have left. They're not accusing you. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And that's not to say that African-Americans have been sinning or prostitution or anything, but it is to say that the people whose society is in large part has said, we don't really care about you as much. We're more focused on other things. Right. Jesus says, no, I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to speak for you. Think about Exodus, right? Like, let my people 
go. I, you are my people. You are my children, not just right. black, but white, the kingdom, kingdom, right? There's a bigger kingdom than I think oftentimes our minds are ready to wrap, wrap, wrap around. Yeah. You know, what you said is so interesting. We talk about the woman caught in adultery or, um, you know, the, the Samaritan woman or, um, you know, other, other examples in the scriptures. We tend to think, or I do speak for myself, when I hear the word racism, because I live in America, I tend to think white and black. That's just, it's almost like they mean the same thing, which of course they don't. There's all kinds of racism. And when you, when, when you break it beyond white and black and begin to think about just, you know, um, judgment and, and, and disadvantaged, unfair be, uh, tr- uh, behaviors or the way you treat another uh, people of another race or even whole races of people, right? Oppressed or um, um, put into a place of disadvantage. Well, then um, it's like the Bible opens up in a whole different way. In other words, the Bible is, is 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 rife with racism, whether it's you know Jew and Gentile, which of course is huge. Um, whether it goes back into the the whole Jewish system, I mean, what happened in the Old Testament, and the difficulty when Jesus sort of reopens um, the the Abrahamic covenant in a new way, right in the Great Commission, he says, "I want to, I want to." He's he's not really bringing anything new to the table. He's he's dusting off the old commission to be a, a, a blessing to all the nations. Israel's special status was for its purpose and its mission, not to enjoy its, you know, blessings from God for themselves. And Jesus says, go in all the world. And of course, mirrored in Revelation, it's all nations, all tongues. That was always the goal. And and when you look at even the disciples of Jesus, right, who don't get it and have a hard time, and not to mention that the, the nation itself, um, you realize how deeply um, longstanding and, and wide is this issue of uh, of racism that we're just now experiencing in America? Yes, it's been uniquely a problem with Africans, right? African Americans in slavery, but the issue of racism is very, very um, longstanding. And and Jesus is a is is the perfect example, of course, of of facing it head on. You know, as he did in the examples that you state. So, in that sense, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a trendy issue. It's not a new issue. It's an old one. And and let me go from that into my my next question for you. One thing that I that I've been learning, Sam, as I as I said to you, I'm I'm doing my best to learn and grow as a pastor in America. In this case, as a white man, and I'm I'm reading books and 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 learning and talking. And if you ask me right now, what's what's the sum of my philosophy, you know, and there are many things we could do, and you mentioned some of them, I would say it begins with something very, very concrete and straightforward. Learn more about the black experience and get learn more uh, about the lives of the black people that you know. I mean, in other words, start where you are because it's about relationships and, and and that's what I'm learning. Like it's, 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 it's get out of the abstract and into the relational concrete relationships. And I was so impressed with your chapter on your relationship with George McCaskey and, and, and just say a few words about it. Those who haven't read your book and, and just, I, I have a lot of, I'd love to, I, I'd love to meet him someday, but I, 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 I wish everyone had his attitude the way you describe it. And I wonder um, if the, if that relationship is not the model for what we all need to do. Say a few words about that. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite chapters. It's titled Prison with the President. And the reason it's titled that way is that George McCaskey, he's the chairman of the Chicago Bears. His mom 
is the owner of the Chicago Bears. His grandfather is the founder of the Chicago Bears and the founder, uh, one of the founders of the NFL. And so this man is football royalty. Back in 2017, when there was a lot of conversation about taking a knee or not taking a knee during the singing of the national anthem, there were some inflammatory comments said from the president, and a lot of players were up in arms. They were ready to do something. Wanted to, everyone wanted to take a knee or protest in some way, shape, or form. And, and everyone had these emotions running rampant. And it was the night before the game. And usually we have our team chapel, we go to a team meeting, and we do a team snack, and we go to bed. And I just left chapel. I was walking to the team meeting, and all of a sudden I get cornered by the chairman. Not just the chairman. I'm also the head coach and the general manager. George McCaskey, John Fox, and Ryan Pace essentially uh, trapped me, for lack of a better term. And I thought at that point my, my football career was over. If you're ever talking to the owner or the general manager, you're usually getting cut. And they said, they didn't cut me, uh, but they did say, Sam, what are you all going to do tomorrow during the National Anthem? Mind you, I was no captain. I was not a captain of the team. I, this I, was, this was, I was... This was in response to the Kaepernick thing, right? No? In response to the Kaepernick thing. Right. In, okay. response to, in response to what, what the president said about the Kaepernick I thing. See. At that point, a Kaepernick had been taking the knee and the president said comments along the lines of um, get those SOBs off of the field and you're fired and cut. And players really it felt it hurt. I see. It hurt because you're, like, you're calling me. What, what did you just call me? And so. You mean the president of the United States, not of the Chicago Bears? Correct. Right. Okay. Keep, Correct. I'm president with you. Of the United going. States. Yep. Correct. Correct. And so they asked me, what are you going to do for this thing in the National Anthem? And I said, I don't know. Um, but I do know this. If you're here tonight at our team hotel during our team meeting, which you usually never come to, um, if you're going to say something, we need to know one thing. We need to know if you have our back. Do we have your support? And he didn't answer the question at that moment. But we went to a team meeting a few minutes later. And Ryan Pace would the general manager voices support, that coach voices support, and the chairman of the team went up in front of all of us and he said, my desire would be for you all to stand hand over heart for the national anthem. It's what we've always done. It's my desire. But I understand that there's a lot of emotions going on. So whatever you decide to do, my only request is that you do it together. And that we did. We went to the game the next day. We decided to lock arms as a team. We won the game. We played the Pittsburgh Steelers. They had some guys stay in the tunnel. One guy was standing out with his hand over his heart. Other guys were, uh, were, were halfway in, halfway out, and it didn't look good. And so they, didn't, they also didn't play well. We came out at the game, won the game, and George McCaskey comes to me and he says, Sam, I love the way you handled that situation. If these are issues that you really care about, I do not want this to be the last time we have these conversations. Come up to my office. My door is open, and let's talk. And talk we did. Went up to his office and, and we had a couple conversations about how we can make real change. What we learned is that you get our hands dirty. And so, so we did. We started going to prisons in the community, did a police ride along, went to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in DC. We went to a rap concert. We really got a chance to learn more about the culture that we were talking about. And I think that is the best way to reconcile in times like these. I just thought that was such a great story and like so much credit to both of you, but to him. Obviously, he's a busy man. He's uh, got a lot to on his plate. And, um, and it's not just like he gave you an hour to say, tell me what you think. But he, 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 he said, I think I remember you said something like, 
um, he kept just saying yes. You know, first it was a, you know, it was a visit to the, to the, to the museum. It was to go to a prison. Just, you know, that's, a, that's a commitment. Go in and visit a prison, listen, uh, take the time to do that. Go to a rap concert, go to the, to the, to the, to the new museum, which I had a chance to go to. It's a very um, serious commitment. I mean, that's, you, that you don't go there for five minutes, but I, I just so appreciated. And I can imagine if he was on this call right now, I'd say, uh, you know, Mr. McCaskey, what did you learn <laughs> not just about Sam Acho, um, I would imagine he'd have a lot to say and and that his perspective is growing and has grown because he actually spent time with someone that he respects who happens to be black and uh, went a little bit further into the experience. So I, I so appreciated that your invitation and his saying yes. And I, and I think for all of us, you know, that's something I don't need to doing, I don't need to write a book. I don't need to, um, you know, do something dramatic, uh, even being in a protest. I'm not knocking that, but I don't, I, all I need to do, or one thing I can do, it's what you and I are doing right now to, to a small degree is say, who do I know? Right. And I think to your point earlier, this is a bigger burden for white people. Okay. So who do I know, um, that has happens to be an African-American or a person of, uh, of, uh, a person of color. How can I simply have a conversation? Listen, maybe even if if someone if I know someone is is nice and is uh, forgiving or or as gracious I should say as Sam Macho, I can do something with them and learn about their um, point of view and their perspective. So I so appreciated that, and I take that um, as a as an encouragement um, um, for myself and I hope for others. Let me ask you something else, Sam, that you did. I'm, I'm thinking about the church. You know, you've said some things already, but one of the things you you did and for the Chicago Bears, um, maybe for church too, but I read in your book, you, you got involved in um, some justice initiatives in the city. And I wonder what 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 did you do? Was this a was this a was this a football team thing or just you and your friends? And can that be a model at all for the church or churches? What you guys were doing? Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. What we decided to do was. The Bible's pretty clear about investing your time and your money and your prayer towards the world, yes, but also towards your community. Uh, pray for your community and and invest and serve the community where I have you. And that's, and that's what we did. And so me and my teammates, we got together and right after that season where we were taking the knee and trying to figure out what we were going to do. And we said, let's actually do something. In addition to protesting, peacefully protesting, let's do something. So we decided to, the NFL had a matching grant that said if players want to donate money, up to $250,000 will match. And we did, and so we said, let's, let's, let's max it out as soon as possible. And so we did, so we raised money, but also we showed up with our time, with our, used our platforms, used our voices, and we got a chance to do some really cool stuff in the community, donated a ton of money and spent time with kids. And even recently we did actually just, uh, did a liquor store teardown party. We're building a food mart on the community. Just so much that God was doing because of our obedience, because of us saying yes. Mm. And is that still going on? Any it's of still this? going on. So just just last week, just last week, we invited Roger Goodell and he came. I invited Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown. He came. We invited the mayor, Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. She came along with about 15 pro athletes from all the different teams. And we came together and did this liquor store teardown party. We got our money together. We bought up a liquor store and a food desert. A food desert is a place that has 
specifically in that neighborhood in, in Chicago. And there's two grocery stores and a half mile radius. And there's over 17 liquor stores. Wow. And we bought one of the liquor stores. We're turning it into a food mart. That's going to be run by the kids, owned by the kids, managed by the kids. They're going to get entrepreneurial skills. They're going to get job experience. That is change. That investment doesn't take a program. It doesn't take a policy. It takes people who care. That's great. What a great story. Um, you, I want to talk, ask you now, just uh, in the time that we have, a little personal about your life, your your walk with Christ. One of the things I also you mentioned it when you were here in Rochester, but your book said more about it. How significant when you, um, I think, when you were with the Cardinals and discovered you had this strange health condition that was um, debilitating, maybe even a little bit embarrassing, but also in many ways um, threatening. And uh, but I, you can say a little bit about what it is if you want. But then I, um, I my question is, you you mentioned how much that condition. Once you realized you could continue as a football player, but you, it's almost like you needed this almost, you know, in the moment, by moment, dependence on God, Jesus, I need you, you mentioned in the book. I wonder, are you, is it still part of your life today? And what does it mean for yeah, your faith? So, yes, I talked about this actually when I, a little over a year ago at Brown Crop mm-hmm. Church. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about this, and uh, title of the chapter in the book called Allergic to Exercise. Yeah. How... Some way or another, I found out during my second season in the NFL that I have an exercise-induced angioedema, i.e. exercise-induced hives. If I exert myself too much, according to the doctors, I start breaking out in hives. And so it got to mm-hmm. a point during the game, first game of the season, I'm starting, playing great, third quarter going to the first quarter, fourth quarter of the game, and all of a sudden I start itching, break down in the hives, and to the point where I had to get an EpiPen shot uh, to to you know calm the swelling and I was taking medicine, all these different things, but the highs kept on coming. So it was a point where every between every single play, almost during every breath, I would pray. I would pray every play between every snap, and it was just it wasn't a long elaborate prayer. It was simply saying the name of Jesus, mm. Jesus. Lord, help me, Jesus. I need you to the point, because I didn't know the swelling had gotten so bad. It was on my lips and in my mouth. The doctor had asked, is it going down your throat, in your throat? I said, no, why? He said, if the swelling gets to your throat, your throat will be blocked. You won't be able to breathe. And you know what happens next. Right. There was real fear there. And so after taking the medicine and doing whatever I needed to do, and all the doctor said, I would just pray and say, Jesus, I need you. You know I need you. I couldn't do this without you. The doctors don't know what they're doing. They don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. God, only you have the answer. Mm. And it became this routine of learning how to have a conversation with the Lord. And I carried on those conversations. Now, now, not in between plays, but in between days, during the days, just praying, Lord, I need you. Whispering the name of Jesus, crying out the name of Jesus. That is the only way. And being obedient to the Lord, being mm. obedient to the spirit of God. That's what I've learned has got me through Days. Well, you know, I there's some people, I don't have time to get into it all, but I mean, just great um, saints of the faith in the past, you know, um, that I've read, and there's and, and there's a theme in many of them, and it's kind of that story. That is to say, they, they discovered somewhere along the line in their life, um, this some kind of, you know, it's like, it's like Paul's, um, you know, thorn in his flesh kind of a thing. Those of us who know that story in 2 Corinthians 12, this, this sense of 
you know, um, some personal issue, physical, emotional, uh, uh, mental, whatever it is of, of crisis or need that in a sense brings you to a deeper dependence on God um, that becomes something you don't really want. Like Paul would say, you know, if you remember that story, you know, I prayed three times, God, get this out of my life. And then he realized this sort of this, this insight that this is actually a channel for grace in his life. So it just made me think about that. So that's still something in your life that didn't go away. It's my question, right? It didn't, it didn't, no, it didn't go away. And I've, yeah. I've tried to mitigate the risk. The doctors say, uh, you know, take this medicine in the morning and at night. And, uh, and I remember there was a point in my career where I said, you know what, if it, if it has to do with exerting myself, I started subbing myself out of game. Mm. When I started to feel myself get really, really tired, instead of just pushing through like all the people say, I would take myself out. Mm. But even now to this day, there'll be times throughout the day where I'll start itching. Whether it's a little bit on my arm mm. or on my forehead, I'll start itching. Yeah, I'll be reminded, uh, in this case, to take my medicine. And the same way I think biblically, it's like, man, that's this this condition is coming. Let me be reminded to get in the word of God and read his word and pray mm. and sing and praise him as opposed to worry. All right, we're almost out of time, but I want to have a little fun with you and just do this little lightning round. And what I mean by that is I'm just going to mention something and you just tell me the first, I don't know, word, maybe phrase, and we'll do this real quick. Comes to mind just to have some fun to, to um, see what um, what comes. So, um, so you just tell me the first word or two or phrase that comes to your mind. So the first thing is your wife. Beautiful. Okay. Um, Bill Clinton. Love him. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that yeah. because I don't know if that's just a hint to some people in your, uh, you, that I loved that chapter. Uh, so it's just so <laughs> encouraging people to read your book that how you got to meet Bill Clinton um, and George Bush in the same uh, meeting. All right. Uh, Khalil Mack. Beast. Beast. That's what you said? Beast? Beast. Okay. Um, Tanahishi Coates. Interesting. Want to learn more. Yeah. Have you read anything? I haven't. I haven't. I've, wa I've, I've watched a little bit, but I haven't read anything. Well, tell me, I, I just finished, those of people who don't know him, you know, he's a, a great writer, I guess one of the, I don't know, maybe one of the great young black uh, intellectuals of our day. Um, but I just finished um, his, um, he's written two or three books. Um, he's written a lot of articles, but his book, his sort of personal story called Between the World and Me. So you'll have to let me know what you think about it. Um, the Dixie Chicks. Not the here nor there. And the reason I bring them up just for fun is not so much because of, you know, their their political, uh, you know, uh, hey, but because in reading your story, I learned something else about you, that you went to St. Mark's. And, yeah. And, uh, and, and the um, St. Mark's is a private school, for those of you who don't know that, in Dallas, Texas, a great school, but you mentioned it in your book. And when I lived in Dallas for um, many years, I lived there for 14 years, but when I first moved there and I was a very um, poor uh, graduate student, I lived in a home, kind of like a, you know, a, a back house kind of a thing for a woman who taught at St. Mark's um, and she may still teach at St. Mark's. And it was great to, um, you know, she just, I got to know the school and through her and she introduced me to one of the original members of the Dixie Chicks. But anyway, I'm sure I just, it was fun thinking of you 
living in that part of where I lived for 14 years. Where, where did you live in, 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 did you live in that area, in the, in the area of St. Mark's? We lived about 10 minutes away, right off of Preston and 635. Wow. I, I so lived, about 10 minutes away. I lived in Preston Hollow, so not far. All right. So how about the Dallas Cowboys? What comes to mind? Not a fan. Really? So I was thinking maybe when I thought about you living in Dallas, that maybe you grew up wanting to play for the Dallas Cowboys. No? Not a fan. Okay. Not a fan. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let sign me maybe different. Yes, of course. Right. You you wouldn't say no, but okay. You you didn't grow up a dyed and a wool Dallas Cowboys fan. It sounds like. Nope. Oh, okay. So the, uh, so I'm done with that. My last question for uh, those who are listening, Sam, one of the other things I was so impressed, and maybe we'll talk about this another time, is um, your love for learning. You know, as, as you mentioned in your book, I mean, you know, this isn't, it's a cliche to say all football players are, you know, you know, just um, jocks or whatever, but it's, I'm sure there are many, many, many um, that are different as everyone's different. But But you certainly are someone from reading your story that has had an intellectual curiosity your whole life and has, uh, maybe it comes from your dad or your mom or whatever. Um, but, and you wrote a book and you, and you got your MBA when you were around the edges of your, you, you, uh, you uh, were accepted at Stanford and turned them down. I, you know, not too many people can say that, but um, I wonder what, um, what book maybe you've read in the last hundred days um, that you would think that doesn't necessarily mean, um, where others may want to read it, but that's really made an impression on you. Yeah. Jason Romano has a book out called the uniform of leadership. Mm. And he's a friend of mine. We have mutual acquaintances. We became friends and he had a book a couple of years ago called live to forgive. It's about forgiving his alcoholic and abusive father. And no, I didn't have an alcoholic and abusive father, but that issue of forgiveness mm. was really strong for me. And so reading that book years ago really changed me. Mm. And then now going to his next book, The Uniform of Leadership, I'm about halfway through it, maybe a third of the way through it. Nice. And I'm really, really, really enjoying the book. It comes out, uh, I think it comes out in a few weeks. Nice. But, uh, he sent me a copy early and I'm loving it. Great. Well, the I'll Uniform check, of Leadership. I'll check it out. I, and I didn't know, you know, we Jason was here, so we got to meet him. So I didn't know you guys knew each other. How fun. And last, let me say yeah. this before I let you go. I uh, Pete told me you were on ESPN this morning. How'd that go? I was. It was great. I was in ESPN this morning on the Golic and Wingo uh-huh. show, just talking about talking about the book, obviously, but more more than that, talking about just if there's going to be an NFL season and what that season is going to look uh-huh. like, and and also some of the work I think we did in, in the community as well. Awesome. Well, Sam, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I know you probably had a long day. We love you here at Browncroft. I hope you'll come back. And we look forward with anticipation to seeing what God's going to do with you, not just in in football um, uh, in the 2021 season, if there is one, but uh, beyond. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much, Rob. Who, who was the teacher? Do you remember the teacher yes, you stayed with? Yes, her Mark name teacher? was Marietta Johnson. That was my second grade math teacher. Wow, that is un. Yeah, I was she just going to say math. Marietta Johnson. Well, Mary, she, she's unbelievable. Well, I'm going to write her and tell her that, and I'm just uh, because I lived in their house for five years. Um, they're they're you know they became I or I shouldn't say they became I became or, or uh, almost a part of a member of their family and. Um, and you know their their kids are all grown and have kids of their own now. But it was uh, it was this was in the early '90s. But that's such a small world, yeah. So she's great. I love yeah. her. Good. Give her if you, if you talk to her, give her my email address or phone number. I'll I will. I'll do it. Sam, thank you for the time. 
Look forward to seeing you again. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Rob. And friends, thank you for uh, joining us and look forward to another episode of The Conversation coming up soon.